Mike Kelly, NHL statistical analyst, analyst, joined me here today. Good morning, Mike. How are you, Steve? Thanks uh, for having me on. And you want to talk hockey with somebody in the middle of August who loves talking hockey anytime, then I'm the guy for sure. So I, I was saying a little earlier in the show that not very often in the middle of August do I really want it to be the middle of October. Mm-hmm. But the way Toronto is right now, with this new Leaf team, with John Tavares, with everything going on, I can't wait for hockey to start. I can't wait to see what we're going to see. What are the challenges for Mike Babcock from your perspective? That's a great question. And uh, it's kind of one of those questions, I think, that you, you're happy to have the problems that he has. You, you've got so much talent on this team. Uh, you bring John Tavares into the mix, um, and it really obviously affects uh, you know who you're going to put on the first line, who you're going to put on the second line. Are there even going to be first and second lines, or is it a 1A, 1B, even ice time situation? Um, you know, what's fascinating to me and what I, I think in terms of challenges for Mike Babcock is going to be the power play. You look at the, the power play last season and Mitch Marner's group, you know, one of the things that I've done in the offseason is, is break down power plays, not just by the team percentage, but by how effective each five-man unit in the NHL was. And of the most used five-man units in the NHL last season, the Mitch Marner group was the most effective. They scored the most goals for 20 minutes of ice time. They were the most effective power play group in the NHL. Now, two of those players, Tyler Bozak and James Van Riemsdyk, are no longer on that unit. So what's the power play going to look like going into this season where you've got Austin Matthews, who no doubt wants a bigger role, um, and John Tavares as well is an incredibly gifted player uh, and effective on the power play. But a lot of those goals went through JVR. He scored 10 of the 27 goals that five-man unit scored. And the Maple Leafs don't have that same net front type player. There aren't that many in the league. So it's not to say that it can't be as effective. It's just going to be different. And that's one of the, one of the big challenges I think Mike Babcock will face. Can you turn Austin Matthews into that front of net guy? Because he seems to have the skill set and the hands from in tight to be able to do some of the same things that JVR was able to do in that circumstance, whether he's willing to physically battle in there the same way, I don't know. But of the players they have, he seems to fit that role almost the, better than anyone else. Yeah, and I, I think he's, he's such a gifted player that you're, you know, you're almost hesitant maybe to put him in that role because of what he can do with open ice. Um, but if somebody needs to fill it, he's certainly someone that seems to make sense. Uh, quick hands, you know, he can, he can get the puck off his stick quickly and, and has the size to, to play in that area of the ice. Um, you want to go a little outside the box. I wonder if a guy like Josh Lebo, and, you know, we'll have to see where he is in, in this organization in general, but, you know, he's got some of those same um, traits where maybe he could be an effective player in that role. So, I imagine there's going to be a degree of shuffling in the preseason and maybe even into the regular season before they really get it figured out because that's the one area for the Maple Leafs this season that I think that I know things are going to be very different and they just have to figure out what their best fit is on both units. Well, here's the odd thing about the power play you talk about. Mitch Marner, not a great shooter. Tyler Bozak, not a great shooter. Nazem Kadri, not a great shooter. Morgan Riley, not a great shooter. 
they had four of the five guys on that power play who I would say are below average NHL shooters <laughs> in, t- in terms of just how good is your shot. Yeah, it's it's weird to me that that group was able to succeed to the degree they were when there's nobody, there's no Ovechkins there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you look at you look at some power plays that you think kind of jump off the page. You've got Ovechkin, you've got Stamkos in Tampa Bay, uh, and Kucherov on the other side, for that matter. Um, you know, there, there's you know Tyler Sagan in Dallas. They they were the the second most effective unit of the most used five man units in the league. You know, Mark Shifley in Winnipeg and Kessel, et cetera, in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, watching the goals that that five-man unit scored last season, a lot came from Marner. Marner had great options on the right wall, and that, that really set the table for the, the success they were able to have. He can go down low to JVR for a quick play at the net. Um, he can go high slot to Nazem Kadri, who kind of a la uh, Daniel and Henrik Sedin, Marner and Kadri would team up for that high slot tip, which proved to be effective. And then there was Bozak backdoor on the other side, um, who would go down and drive that low post on the left side. So you don't need to have great shots to succeed with the types of plays that they would draw up more often than not, um, which enabled them to be effective. But, you know, as we're talking about it, it's going to be a different setup this year, um, not having James Van Riemsdyk in that spot. To, to create goals or at the very least odd man situations down low for rebounds. Um, you still have cadre that you can use in the high slot, but it will be different. So uh, a bit unusual, but like I said, they were the most effective five man unit in the league. Or maybe it means structurally you have to change. Yeah. You have to change. I know most teams in the NHL seem to use that same umbrella power play. Everybody using the one guy at the top and, and the, the V, if you want to call it that. Uh, with, the, with the two wide guys and, and then two guys in front. Um, pretty much it's standard in, in copycat hockey now that everybody's using that same thing just as they're using the same breakout drop pass through the neutral zone. Um, but I really wonder, and, and I go back now to the meeting Austin Matthews had with the two meetings that Austin Matthews had with Mike Babcock, and I'm sure power play time came up, and I'm sure power play time where he ranks in the NHL came up. Can you work a power play and find a place for both Tavares and Matthews the way Pittsburgh does with Malkin and Crosby? Yeah, that, that's an interesting concept as well, right? And, you know, John Tavares, he's, he's, he's a guy that generates a ton from the slot in general, um, and he, he can get in tight as well. Um, it's not like he's a guy that's stationed in front of the net, but he knows how to play in those areas, and so does Matthews. So, um, to your point, maybe it's less of having one guy who's stationary there the way that Van Riemsdyk was because, you know, off the top of my head, I think of Wayne Simmons, Anders Lee, Patrick Hornquist, and JVR, really the top guys at doing what they do in front of the net. So if you don't have that guy in Toronto, um, and, and obviously Austin Matthews, you know, he, a, a lot of what came out of Toronto, and, and you're in the trenches every day, you have a better idea than I do. Um, was he would like more ice time and he would like more power play ice time. And now John Tavares is in the mix. So however they shuffle it, um, like I said, I think it's going to take a little a bit of massaging to figure out what works best. And having both those guys on the same unit, maybe not having a designated guy down low, but having them both as, as slot options could be something that could be effective for them. I would love to be in the meetings right now 
and just oh, hearing yeah. of what the preparations are and what the plans are, not just for... I, he's already kind of announced what his lines are for the top two, which is completely un-Babcock-like, by the way. You know, for him to do that is very unusual. But on the day of the Tavares signing... So why do you think he did that? I wonder, I, the I, I wonder if it was a message to Mitch Marner more than anything else. It's, we're doing, we're putting you in a great position. You go now have the summer. He talks a lot about summers and what they do in the summers and getting ready for the season. And Marner was their best player in the playoffs, and he was their best scorer in the second half of the season. And maybe it's, we're appreciating you now, and we're putting you with Tavares. So it's showtime, baby. (laughs) That's kind of the, that was my first interpretation, because it's not like Babcock to, and the other thing about it that was really weird is he's, he is, He's the president of the Zach Hyman fan club. Yeah. And so for him to take Zach Hyman off, to, off Austin Matthews' line, to me, was a sign that Austin Matthews said, can you please take Zach Hyman off my line? Because otherwise, why do you make that move? And, and so I wasn't sure you know, how that came to be. But I'm really curious to see structurally what he does with these, because it, it's riches that most coaches don't get very often. And... They're both going to want power play time, and they're both going to want first power play time. And it's yeah. going to, you know, and it's going to be interesting just to watch what Matthews can do and what Tavares can do, and possibly what they could do together at times. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the only caveat, I guess, in, in putting them on the same unit is you've got two two left shots. Um, it, you know, going through this stuff, I was looking at the worst power play unit of the most used in the NHL, and it was in St. Louis. They put their five highest scoring players on the same unit. Seems like a smart idea. All four of the forwards they use for left shots. And the amount of broken plays and the lack of one-timer options, it was a battle for them. And, and so you gotta be, you got to be cognizant of that. But, if you know, I, I wonder if having Tavares and Matthews kind of play the same role on the power play on different units, but splitting the time might be an option. Less of a 90-second, 30-second, and more of a you know, minute each and, and alternate who goes out first. But, you know, is this year ever going to be about managing egos and, and, and all, all, of the, um, all the other stuff that comes with coaching other than the tactics for Mike Babcock? There's a, this is a special blend with having two, two guys down the middle who are that good and that competitive. So much talk about the Leafs' defense and whether it's good enough and, and all the things that go along with it. And we saw that Pittsburgh team win two years ago without Chris Letang in a really ordinary six-man unit. Um, one of the things, and no one talks about this very much, but I'm of the belief that one of the things the Leafs don't have is a big shot from the blue line. And you saw it in the playoffs uh, of how much it helped the Washington Capitals, and you saw it in, in, even in the Leafs series how much it helped the Boston Bruins. Um, I think sometimes the Leafs suffer, not from having the weak defense that we all talk about, but from not having a guy from the point that can really blast it. Yeah, um, I I would agree with you. I don't think they have a a big shot defenseman on their team. Um, You know, the the odds of scoring a goal from from that range are are pretty limited. Um, Now, again, obviously you got a big shot like that, you can create rebounds, uh, make deflections more difficult for goaltenders, etc. Um, I, I don't know that having a big shot on their blue line is... This team's going to generate so much offense anyways. Um, and they create a lot in transition as well. You know, I, I look at the Leafs last year, and 
and they they attempted more stretch passes than any team in the league by a good number. Um, they also had the second worst completion rate on these stretch passes of any team in the league. So, you know, to use a, a baseball analogy, they swing for the fences. They hit a lot of home runs, but they strike out a lot too. So, um, you know, they like to create a lot in transition. They generate a lot of odd man rushes, uh, a lot of scoring chances off the rush. They move the puck up. Uh, when they're exiting the zone, they like to go for these neutral zone stretch passes. Um, and, and they've got, you know, I think Travis Dermott's a guy on their team who showed in, again, limited time and, and pretty sheltered minutes that he can do a lot of things really well for the Maple Leafs. The problem is the two guys ahead of him on the depth chart on the left side is how do you get Dermott more minutes? You give Gardner less minutes. I wouldn't be opposed to that. You know, and, and you talk about the stretch passes. Jake Gardner is the guy who led the entire league in stretch pass attempts. And there was 169 guys in the league that attempted at least 100 stretch passes. Jake Gardner in completion rate ranked 166. And we really saw that come to be in Game 7 against Boston where he attempted the second highest number of stretch passes in a game of any player all year, regular season or playoffs. And it was the 6-4 goal, the one that essentially put it away for the Bruins that came off uh, a failed pass into the neutral zone that went back the other way for a goal. So Travis Dermott, he was top 25, I believe, top 30 in the league in completing stretch passes. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one facet of the game and certainly not enough to say, well, you should play more than another guy when you're talking about a defenseman. But these are the things I think the Maple Leafs need to look at really seriously if you're going to rely so much on something and you're going to have the identity of your breakout be this thing, well, who are the guys that can put you in the best position to succeed? That's one area where I think you can absolutely argue for Dermott to get more minutes over Gardner. And then, of course, there's you know so many other facets of being a defenseman that you can get into. But I think Dermott should be given equal opportunity to push Gardner for ice time, no question. So this is where I think Babcock becomes fascinating as a watch this season as it, as it comes. And I think Kyle Dubas, in his first year as general manager, uh, known for his you know analytics background as well as everything else he now does. Um, so I'm wondering if someone like him will change some of the approaches that the Leafs take. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the, the Maple Leafs, they have their own analytics staff there and and you know they have they have resources beyond what any team in the national hockey league has so um i'm sure they have all the information they need to to make the kind of decisions they want to make um you know i i wouldn't be shocked to see dermot get an elevated role if he continues to play the way that he did he skates the puck really well and he moves it with a stick really well um i wonder about the right side and you know, what are your thoughts on whether or not the right side's strong enough to compete with the big boys in the East? Well, well, I th- I, I'm of the belief that I'm not a big left-right guy, to be perfectly honest. I go back to some of the greatest pairs in NHL history were right-right-left-left. So I think sometimes it, it comes down to, you know, not, not which way you shoot, but how you play. Mm-hmm. I'm, o- I'm okay with Hainsey. I think I can live very nicely with Hainsey. I'm okay... I just think there there are some areas there, and the guy who actually impressed me in the playoffs in the American Hockey League playoffs, and I was surprised by this because he didn't impress me much when he was with the Leafs, was Callie Rosen, mm-hmm. and he's a guy I think is going to be interesting to see where he emerges because there's a spot 
there's sort of a question mark spot left. Who is the Leafs sixth defenseman? Like, I don't know if anybody knows who that is right now. Or, or fifth, depending on how the order works out. But I think he's a guy who might be, him and Justin Hole might be in the leading candidates to emerge on this team next year. Yeah, I, I liked Rosen. Uh, it, you know, last year I worked uh, as an analyst in the radio broadcast for the Laval Rocket and, and got to see the Marlies, I think, three times uh, live in addition to watching some, some video. Um, you know, Timothy Lilligren, great skill set, not ready for the NHL. Um, but I don't think the Leafs are, are you know, concerned with pushing him into a role he's not ready for. Um, Rosen, you know, I'd agree with you. He's a guy that stood out as, as you know, somebody that I took more notice of than I had in the past. And, and I think I have to imagine, I guess, five spots are, are locked up on, on the blue line for the most part. And then it's that sixth spot, like you say, that, you know, nobody is definitely nobody's taken it. Um, it's not set in stone. So, again, you know, so many good options for the Maple Leafs and uh, not a ton of weaknesses and. You talk about just being ready for, for October to start in the season to get going. You know, I, I lived in Toronto for 12 years until a year ago when I've since moved to Montreal, but I can't imagine Leaf Nation, you know, what everybody's going through right now, just waiting for the season to start. So one last question before letting you go, because I'm always interested in, in what the eye sees and what the stats see and whether they're the same thing. Nikita Zaitsev had a terrible year for the Leafs. Um, Mike Babcock and some of the Leaf management people were saying, we view him differently than you view him. Uh, what do you see or what have you seen statistically from him? Well, I think the eye test and the numbers test will essentially say the same thing. as He didn't have a very good year. Um, and it's, it's a little bit difficult to get a grasp on who this guy is because we've certainly seen him, some, uh, him play some better hockey. But uh, off the top of my head, just looking at, you know, what, what he was able to do, um, you know, somewhat effectively last year, uh, kind of more of a defensive defenseman role. He, he, he can play a little bit physical, but he, he's not a great skater. He didn't move the puck um, really in, in any rate um, with his stick or with his skating uh, at any high rate. Uh, his turnover rates were, you know, so this is just measuring how often a player uh, loses possession of the puck based on how often – he has how many times he has the puck on his stick. His turnover rates were not good. Um, not good in the neutral zone, not good in the defensive zone. Um, so I, 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 my hunch is that he's kind of something in between what we've seen from, from last year and, the, and before that. Uh, but the numbers did not suggest that, you know, he had a, a particularly good year and, and, and the eye test failed. The, the numbers suggested that he didn't have a very good year either. Well, Mike, thanks for doing this. And I presume like... All of us here in Toronto, you're looking forward to the start of the season in October. Of course. Thanks a lot, Steve. Pleasure talking to you. Mike Kelly, NHL statistical analyst and a guy who breaks down the games in ways that we don't necessarily see or hear about.